we're coming to the end of what's been a bit of a lightning tour through the Gospel of Luke. Along the way, um, uh, we've actually inevitably had to miss out a lot. But uh, um, one of the most important themes, actually, that we have missed out is actually God's faithfulness to his word. If you remember, Luke was writing his gospel to this uh, non-Jewish Roman citizen called uh, Theophilus. Um, Perhaps Theophilus was rather confused as um, he looked at this new movement called Christianity because uh, there was the the big movement, Judaism, that uh, claimed to follow the Bible, the Old Testament, and now there were these Christians who were hated vehemently by the Jews and yet um, who claimed uh, the Bible for themselves. And uh, Luke, throughout, uh, seeks to explain to Theophilus that no, Jesus is the fulfilment of the hopes of the Old Testament. All the promises made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. We've had to overlook a lot of other things as well, But I hope we have caught a characteristic and what I think is the central and unifying theme of Luke's Gospel. As Luke addresses rich, sophisticated and respectable Theophilus, he uh, um, tells him that uh, the good news of the Gospel is that uh, God goes to despised people, God goes to the poor people, God is particularly concerned for outsiders. For Theophilus, you see, that was uh, incredibly attractive because uh, uh, as he rubbed shoulders with uh, traditional Jews, he knew he was an outsider. Respected in Rome he may have been, but not in Jerusalem. And Jesus told that parable of the great banquet, you remember, where the servant was finally sent out in the country lanes and the roads to compel foreigners in. But at the same time as giving Theophilus this, this magnificent good news that God was actually interested in outsiders, he tells Theophilus that actually if he wants to follow Jesus, he cannot expect in the Roman world, in the Gentile world, to hang on to his respectability, his status, his pride, even his wealth. He must lose his life to gain it. What use is it, said Jesus, if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Jesus warned him if he's ashamed of him, then Jesus himself will be ashamed of Theophilus when he comes in his glory. Indeed, the love of respectability, the love of of money, and most of all, the pride that so often goes with with it, Jesus has warned again and again, cuts us off from God, decisively, finally, irrevocably. Remember in that parable of the banquet, not one of those who were invited will come to my banquet, said the Master. Luke emphasises again and again to Theophilus that the mark of someone who is 
following Jesus is that they love their enemies, that they are non-judgmental in their attitudes to, to, to others, that they actually use their wealth for the benefit of the poor. They imitate Jesus, who was anointed by God, said Jesus, to preach good news to the poor. It's extraordinarily good news for Theophilus, who might have feared lest he was on the outside. It's an extraordinary challenge for Theophilus who suddenly realises, like Jesus, he has to surrender everything that is most precious to him to gain something even more precious, eternal life. And uh, we have tried to see how how vital that message of Luke's Gospel is in our world today. Our, our Western world in particular, in which pride is endemic, in which we are far too attracted and attached to material things, in which society is becoming more, more stratified, with less contact actually between the wealthy and the underclasses. To those who question Jesus' association with the dregs of the earth, he said, that's what I'm about. Told the story, uh, you remember, of uh, the prodigal son, a son who squandered his inheritance, ruined his life, finally coming home. And the father ran to him, hugged him, kissed him, threw a banquet for him. And then went out and told that sceptical older brother, this is what I'm about. Won't you join me? But since the uh, middle of that, uh, uh, of the Gospel of Luke, the story as it's unfolded has been heading inexorably to only one Place. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then as he uh, walks to Jerusalem, he repeatedly warns his disciples he must be rejected, he must suffer, he must die. And today we have got to the, uh, the, the point that Luke's Gospel has been heading to for a long time. Luke vividly portrays Jesus' last hours and gives us um, a powerful, compelling, deeply personal portrait of Jesus. I hope that, that this morning then, as we look at these last hours of Jesus and his death, we will be able to bring together all that Luke has told us about Jesus now into, into some sort of point, some sort of resolution. Because what Luke is saying to us is this is the moment this is the moment when Jesus achieved all that he said he was going to do. This is the moment when we see most clearly what the issues are. This is the moment of choice. The moment of destiny. 
We're going to pick out just a couple of things. Some last words of Jesus. First of all, we're going to see Jesus' last warning that he gives as he stumbles, um, now condemned to die on the cross to his own crucifixion. There is, in the second half of uh, Luke 23, a group of women. Perhaps they are professional mourners, perhaps they uh, are really weeping from their hearts. Luke describes them. A large number of people, verse 27, followed him, including women, who uh, mourned and wailed for him. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. The time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never cursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. This is shocking stuff. But Jesus speaks as he heads for his death. Childlessness was considered in Jesus' day to be the, the, one of the worst of all curses. But Jesus warns that one day, childless people will be envied because they won't have to see their children suffer. He quotes a terrible warning from the Old Testament, from uh, the prophecy of Hosea, that a day will come when people are so terrified that they wish a mountain would fall on them and annihilate them and cover them, rather than have to face their terror uncovered and unprotected. What does he mean? Some suggest that since he's addressing the daughter of Jerusalem, he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem that did happen a few years later in AD 70. And it was a terrible moment for the nation of Jerusalem. But actually the book of Revelation, written just a little while later, expands that image insisting actually that it doesn't just apply to Jerusalem, it applies to people from every nation, every stratum of society. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15, um, uh, we're told the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us. And then, then the revelation goes on to explain why these people will be terrified. They say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. These people are mourning for a tragedy that they can see unfolding towards them, the death of Jesus. And Jesus says, well that is nothing. There is a far greater tragedy awaiting our world. A tragedy in which people of all kinds and every station in life from every nation in the world will have to face the living God with their sins unforgiven. This is this shocking imagery that they would wish a mountain could fall on them rather than face God.
I'd love to tell you that it is all okay for everyone in the end. But this last warning of Jesus, one of his last words, impresses upon us it is anything but okay for anyone who is not reconciled to God. The stakes are incredibly high. If there is anyone amongst us here this morning who is not reconciled to God, then we need to see how high those stakes are. This is why as a church we focus so much on reaching out to people with the love of Christ, with the truth about Christ. Because the most important thing in the world for every single person is that they should not have to face God with their sins unforgiven and be absolutely certain every single person will face God. Death does not secure us from meeting him far the opposite. No, death is the moment when we are, when we do meet him. This last warning of Jesus is not malice at all. It is full of love, full of compassion. He affectionately addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. He wants them to see with clarity the issues that face them. And let me say, for those of us here who are reconciled to God, never forget, that is how high the stakes are. It is vitally important that we glorify God with our jobs, we glorify God through our relationships with people, we glorify God by enjoying Him and adoring Him and obeying Him in our personal lives. But our great commission is to reach out to a lost world and implore them to be reconciled to God. There is not a single person whom we know, not a single person who we ever met, who will escape facing the living God one day. And if they have not had their sins forgiven, it will be a terrible thing for them. Love and compassion must drive us then to implore people to be reconciled to God. A heartbeat of everything we do corporately as God's people here is to be an instrument, to be instruments in God's great purpose of bringing people to himself. Jesus' last warning makes it absolutely plain. He hasn't been, hasn't been giving nice instructions about how it would be much nicer to live our lives in a slightly different way. He hasn't, he, he hasn't been teaching us uh, wonderful truths so that our minds can be a little bit more illuminated. He has been bringing people face to face with ultimate realities that everyone must face. 
Will we be forgiven when we meet the living God? And then, the second thing that Jesus says. A last promise. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung on the cross next to Jesus hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. There are actually three key things that Luke portrays in this criminal, this thief on the cross, as he's traditionally called. One is that this man clearly recognises his own guilt. One of them doesn't, of course. One of them just uh, hurls insults at Jesus. But this second one clearly recognises his own guilt. We, he says, are punished justly. Now, now, frankly, today, most of us are not criminals of the, of the sort that this man clearly was. But the Bible is absolutely clear that if we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, as John, as John puts it in one place. It is vital that we own up to the truth. That there is sin in us which would rightly lead us to be punished by God. Stories often told of a newspaper debate in the Times about a hundred years ago of what was wrong with the world and G.K. Chesterton wrote to the paper and said, Sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. We don't own own up to our personal responsibility to our failures before God then we cannot enjoy the promise that Jesus gives this man now this man recognises his guilt the second thing that Luke portrays in this man is that he sees something of who Jesus is he sees first of all that, that Jesus is innocent He has done nothing wrong, he says. Verse 41. But he sees as well that beyond death, somehow Jesus is going to be inaugurated as a a new king, a new ruler. He will come into his kingdom, as he puts it in verse, uh, verse 42. Now, he doesn't see everything. He doesn't fully recognise that Jesus is God the Son. He doesn't understand that Jesus is at that moment actually dying for the sins of of people like like him. But he sees enough about who Jesus is to know that Jesus, in Jesus, is his only hope in eternity. And then thirdly, knowing that, he asks for mercy. 
remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says. There's no complicated rituals that he needs to do. Not time for any long discipleship class, any catechism, any learning of the creed. But there is enough time for him to receive this assurance. He doesn't need to make great professions that somehow he will atone for his sins. How can he? And he doesn't actually make the misguided request, please, please Lord, give me a better life, get me down off this cross. The other criminal does that. For him there is only one thing that is supremely important. Remember me, Jesus. Have mercy on me, Jesus. I'm punished justly now. But in eternity, please, forgive me. And in response to that, Jesus makes this extraordinary promise. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Actually, the term paradise was a, was a word loaned from uh, uh, surrounding uh, cultures. A paradise was a garden. In fact, it was typically a garden attached to a pagan temple. And it was a place of rest, a place of recreation, a place of security, a place of pleasure, where people could just relax near to the temple of their pagan god, or near to the god himself, of course. And uh, the Jews already had taken it over into their vocabulary. And Jesus here uses it because it perfectly captures the imagery that he wants to give to this man. Today, you will be secure in the presence of my Father. Today, you will be in a place of rest. Today, you will be in a place of pleasure. Today, you will begin enjoying eternal life beyond the grave with the only God who really exists. The God who made the heavens and the earth. The God of true paradise. That promise is for us too. Certainly, if, uh, uh, if we're not going to die immediately, there will be much more that we can discover and understand about how Jesus saves us. Certainly, if, we, if God doesn't take us the, this moment, there will be much more that we can do in delighted response to, to Jesus. Certainly, there, there may well be um, a real change of life that needs to happen. But the key that helps us know that Jesus personally assures us of an eternity with God in paradise is a recognition of guilt, a recognition of Jesus, 
and a humble appeal for mercy. That is all we need to do. I'm sure Luke sees it as magnificently appropriate that Jesus' last interaction with a person is with a low-life criminal. The Gospel was for the poor and the poorest of all has seen it and found eternal life. Last warning then and a last promise and then Luke records the last act the supreme act not of tragedy but of triumph his death it was now the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two Jesus called out with a loud voice Father into your hands I commit my spirit and when he had said this he breathed his life let his last. This is so sparingly told and yet this is colossal. And Luke indicates that by, by telling us darkness came over the whole land. Indeed he repeats it and then says the sun didn't shine. Something extraordinary, something supernatural is happening. And those who know their Old Testament would, 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 um, uh, would know that this is a symbol of some terrible curse that is coming. Luke uh, doesn't unpack the fact that it is Jesus taking actually the curse, the consequences of all of the sins of his people on himself. So vividly real was that at that moment that God turned the light out to let people see something cosmic is happening here. Or uh, the, the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Again, someone who knows a bit about their Old Testament would know that the, this curtain in the temple was there precisely, actually, to separate people from God, to protect people from God in one sense. The whole Old Testament taught that you can come perhaps close to God at God's temple, but... Woe betide you if you come into God's presence. If we see God, we will die. And now, this curtain is torn in two because no longer does there need to be that separation between God and man. But anyone who has the assurance of Jesus that they are forgiven has full and free access into his presence. Luke describes Jesus still in control, actually uh, uh, uttering his last words with the words that an average um, Jew may well 
have uh, uttered uh, as his last prayer before he went to sleep. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus is entering the sleep of death. Completely in control. He knew it must happen from the beginning. Luke shows us that some people get an inkling that something extraordinary has has happened. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Some people look on it as just a, a terrible tragedy and walk away. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Some watch from a distance, confused, not quite knowing what's going on. Verse 49, all those who knew him, including the women who followed from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. But actually, there is just one man, a rather surprising man, a respectable man, who'd been associated with the very group that had got him condemned. Just one man who puts his neck on the line for Jesus at this point. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who'd not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. He took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Expresses um, to express sympathy for for uh, for, the, for a condemned man was close to treason. Pilate was 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 certainly not averse to adorning the hills around Jerusalem with a, with another cross. Joseph is being extremely brave here. Perhaps Luke records him. Because he wants Theophilus to imagine himself as being a Joseph. A good man. Perhaps in his life far too closely associated with uh, evil as uh, Joseph was being a member of the council that condemned Jesus. But a good man, nevertheless, who now begins to risk everything for Jesus. I wonder as you look at the these people whom Luke describes, which category you're in. We know the stakes are high, Jesus has said that. We know actually the way to forgiveness and eternal joy is wide open. Jesus told the thief that. Are we perhaps like that centurion who um, yeah, could see that there was a tragedy, actually praised God and praised Jesus, but not yet has he done anything more. 
far too many people who hear about Jesus are just like those people who beat their breasts and go away. It was a bad thing that happened, but hey, what can I do? And actually there are an awful lot of people in uh, churches who look at the death of Jesus from a distance and sort of hover there. They're very happy to have his death portrayed before them again. They're very happy, actually, to stand and look on. But it's Joseph whom Luke applauds. Who puts his life on the line. A last warning. A last promise. A last act that, that, that opened the way for people to become truly free, truly assured of paradise. But what response? Now, I want to say something to you uh, this morning that I, I think sums up the whole of Luke's gospel. But I want to put it in bigger terms than that. I think it's absolutely crucial for the future of Christianity in our nation, in the Western world, and I'm absolutely certain it will be crucial for your future life. Some people say that the future of Christianity depends on um, uh, raising up people who can powerfully uh, and with great clarity proclaim the gospel. I, I think that's very, very important, but I'm not sure it's as central as some would say. Some people say the future of Christianity lies in a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that, frankly, that's a truism. There is nothing good that happens in this world, in God's church, that is not empowered by the Holy Spirit. But according to Luke, and Luke would insist, according to Jesus, the future of Christianity lies in ordinary people, in ordinary churches, who see with the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that actually God raises up the humble and puts down the proud, who are actually enthralled that God um, um, uh, anointed Jesus to preach good news to the poor, who are deeply committed to actually loving enemies, who are so transformed that they become like that father who ran to the prodigal son and hugged him and kissed him, who have seen the pride that there is in their hearts and who have, who have devoted themselves actually to inviting the poor, the lame, the blind and the maimed into their lives and into the kingdom of God, who are prepared to lose their lives for Jesus in order to find them, who are not interested in gaining the world because they know that it is to gain their soul that is the most important thing, who are determined never to be ashamed of Jesus in this world because they do not want him to be ashamed of them on the last day. That is what Luke has been calling us to do and that is what will transform us and will transform the future of our nation and our world for Christ if there are ordinary people who really live like that. 
And I want to say to you that it is vitally important that we stand for that as God's church here. Absolutely vital. And that particularly that we grasp hold of this heart of Jesus. That he loves the outsider. He loves the marginalised. He loves those actually whom the world casts aside. He thinks the Theophiluses of this world are absolutely strategic. Luke writes his whole gospel to them. Luke applauds Joseph of Arimathea, that respected man. But they are strategic because they can go to the people whom Jesus calls them to go to. They can put their lives on the line. And they can be part of a movement which changes the world. I'm absolutely convinced that that is what God has called us to as a church. And I'm absolutely convinced that it is vitally important, not, not, not just for your life, and it is important for your life, but it is vitally important for this city, and it is vitally important for Britain, and it is vitally important for our world that we have people who will live for Christ like that. I've said before and I say it again, there is a real danger that actually particularly Western Christians we just become too obsessed with uh, going for the, the people and situations that seem to be strategic. Jesus recruited his disciples from despised Galilee and when he went to respectable Jerusalem they crucified him. And I am absolutely certain that actually if God's people do not have that burning in their heart then ultimately he will not give them fruit. My reading of the New Testament and actually my reading of history persuades me that a mark of real vitality is that God's people follow Jesus in proclaiming good news to the poor. That's what we stand for. We stand firmly for that. We are determined here to make a difference in God's world in that way. I call you to put your life on the line. It will mean money. Jesus is absolutely clear in Luke 16. Give um, money, use money to gain friends for yourself eternally, he says. It will mean going back again and again to scripture to be revitalised by our reading of the word of God. Just as old fussy old Martha who was uh, um, uh, rushing off to do all those busy things was told that Mary who sat and listened to Jesus had done the one thing that was necessary. It will, uh, it will need 
um, uh, solid, steady determination, but more than anything it will need people whose lives and hearts are transformed. I hope that's a vision that really grips you. I hope that's a vision that really gives you a desire to live your lives in a new way. So that's what we stand for.